0: This week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network.
1: In this episode, we discuss the SEC enforcement action involving ENI, which was released at Happy Hour last Friday. We take a look at a tenacious whistleblower who was awarded $27 million from Kevin LaCroix in the DNO diary. Some COVID 19 scenarios that may play out for CCOs. Gemma A. Fioli explores. Leaders' Dirty Hands and COVID-19 and another take on the issue. Data and security requirements are here to stay in the NYU Compliance and Enforcement blog, Why Companies Should Leave Compliance Alone, Jenna Voss. Christiana Ariana and Chase Goldstein and CCI EY takes a beating Martin Woods explains where was and is your board Carrie Penman asked and can the government forfeit defense fees? Sarah Croft in grand jury target podcast highlights for the week from compliance and coronavirus and 31 days to a more effective compliance program all on this week in FCPA with Tom Fox and Jay Rosen, this weekend FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C Suite Radio. Thanks for listening to this episode. Hello, everyone. Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, back again with Mister Monitors himself, Jay Rosen, for this weekend FCPA episode 202 for the week ending April 24th, 2020, the Gronk Returns edition. Jay. As Gronk has ended his self-imposed isolation from the Patriots to rejoin the Golden One, self-distancing is still a plum in both Houston and sunny Southern California. And there are a plethora of ethics and compliance stories, which we have for this week. But before we begin, can we get a check-in on the Rosen
0: family? The Rosen family still has enough bandwidth To keep us all happy, we've been Zooming with the folks. We played Zoom categories last night back east, and uh, all is good here in Simi Valley. What is the report from Houston?
1: So uh, energy companies' corporate earnings reports were out this week, and it was a bloodbath in energy, so uh, we're all uh, worried about the fallout from the, uh, the end of oil, or so they say. But how about some compliance stories?
0: Why don't we go to a, a hot thing that first came to us from the FCPA blog? Why don't you tell us about our favorite Italian oil company?
1: Well, first of all, Matt Kelly broke this story. So shout out to Matt. Ooh, sorry, cool uh, guy. Yeah, coolest guy. Um, a happy hour FCPA enforcement action from the Securities and Exchange Commission was announced last week, May uh, excuse me, April seventeenth, uh, one week ago, after we recorded that uh, our episode for last week involving the recidivist ENI is Now it joins the two-time loser club. Uh, the case involved EI's bribery and corruption of its SIPAM uh, subsidiary for the Algerian national energy company Sonatrack. And it had uh, some interesting aspects, Jay. It was fairly straightforward in terms of the bribery and corruption. They hired a corrupt agent who was paid 198 million euros uh, for a one-man virtual company in Switzerland who performed those services. And, uh, didn't exist prior to signing a contract with, uh, the subsidiary Saipem. Uh, the other interesting aspect, uh, Matt called it, I believe the virtual, no, um, Mike Volkoff called it the virtual agent, um, I was more intrigued with the internal control overrides because uh, you had uh, C-suite involvement in and direction of the bribery scheme. in the person of the CFO of Saipan, the subsidiary, who later became the CFO of ENI, uh, he directed uh, corrupt payments be made while at Saipan, and he continued that direction while he was at E&I. and uh, i separated their employment with the corrupt CFO, who was later convicted by an Italian court of bribery and corruption. That conviction was overturned on appeal. Um we linked to several um, resources uh, regarding this. Um, I wrote about it. Matt wrote about it. Uh, Harry Kasson wrote about it in the FCPA blog. Dylan Tokar reported on it uh, as well. And Matt and I took a deep dive into it in the, uh, this week's episode of Compliance into the Weed. So check out uh, E&I. Uh, it's an interesting case. Uh, with uh, some great control override uh, issues, as well as the uh, internal bugaboo of uh, third parties. And uh, happy, happy hour to the SEC. Thanks for dropping that on us at 4.59 p.m. Friday, April 17th.
0: So here's something else that involves the SEC, and this is a subject that's usually near and dear to Matt Kelly's hearts, whistleblowers. Uh, The article comes to us from Kevin LaCroix and his DNO. Diary uh, tenacious SEC whistleblower awarded more than 27 million. this is from uh, April 19th of this year, and the largest such award so far this year, the SEC has awarded more than 27 million to a whistleblower blower excuse me, an amount that the commission increased above staff recommendations in recognition that the whistleblower had repeatedly and tenaciously voiced his concerns about the misconduct within the organization before reporting. According to the Commission's order, the whistleblower involved, quote, voluntarily provided information, unquote, to the Commission that led to successful enforcement of a Commission enforcement action. In keeping with the requirements of the Dodd-Frank Act and the Commission's practices, the Commission's order has taken steps to protect the anonymity of the whistleblower involved, and the agency also withheld the identity of organization involved as well. Despite the numerous redactions, there are a number of interesting things that Kevin drew from this uh, announcement. First, the order states that the commission staff had actually recommended a lower award, but the commission chose to depart from the staff's preliminary recommendations and increased the award to the ultimate payout amount of $27 million. Second, while the order says little about the specific conduct alleged in the enforcement, the order does expressly note that, quote, hidden conduct, unquote, that was unearthed as a result of the whistleblowers occurred, at least in part, overseas. Third, in the press release, the commission reported that the award was the largest announced so far this year and the sixth largest since the time of the commission's first award in 2012. Fourth, the Commission's press release also reports that with this award, the total amount of 79 awards the Commission has made as part of the program has now reached approximately $425 million. And fifth, the order expressly states that in determining the amount of the award, it actively considered whether the whistleblower unreasonably delayed in reporting information to the Commission. While there are a number of noteworthy aspects to this whistleblower award, the award's most noteworthy feature is its share size. The whole point of the whistleblower program was to provide prospective whistleblowers with financial incentives to come forward and other large awards in the program's history is certainly large enough to capture prospective whistleblowers imagination. Although the circumstances underlying the whistleblower award predated the current coronavirus outbreak, Kevin LaCroix found himself unable to think about this award without thinking about current circumstances arising from the pandemic. His concern is is that companies struggle to regain their footing in the wake of the outbreak. They will be challenged by disrupted financial operating conditions. And with concerns about cash flow, liquidity, customer solvency, and other factors relating to business, these concerns might uh, demonstrate themselves in an ethical and uh, logical lapse. So it's a great article that Kevin brings to us. And uh, now back to you, John.
1: So, Jay, next up we have an article by Jimma Aeofi. I'm sure I butchered that. Uh, Jim is the head of compliance, corporate governance, and collective action at the Basel Institute on Governance. And she posted in the FCPA blog five possible scenarios for compliance professionals in the post-COVID world. Uh, number one is the law will remain the law and uh, nothing will change. Uh, number two is companies that have a, a reporting culture and an integrity culture will uh, receive a competitive advantage uh, in the marketplace. Third is that with a surge in state support and bailouts of some industries, there will be an increase in government influence on company ownership. And uh, this will – uh, may make uh, a privately owned company a um, foreign government or uh, a state-owned enterprise. So, for FCPA purposes, you need to be aware of that. What's ver- vertical inter- or is Vertical integration, and what's that going to mean? Obviously, that is a, a big issue now in supply chain in terms of just-in-time or lean supply chains. You're going to have to expand out your supply chain, and meaning have some fat or some inefficiencies in there. Are you going to be able to get a comprehensive anti-corruption compliance management system in an integrated change of chain of companies after coronavirus and finally the political considerations about what is a strategic industry may change Response to the lessons we've learned from the weaknesses in public health systems, supply chains, and procuring essential goods. Strategic advantages often enjoy unhealthy proximity to governments, particularly through lobbyists. And so you may need to do due diligence in a way and to a level that you previously had not done uh, because uh, some industries, and here you can think of cotton masks, have become uh, uh, more important now, or perhaps even hand soap. So, uh, interesting article and pontificating on what it may look like down the road, Jay.
0: Uh, this article that we have next comes to us from a risk and compliance platform Europe. It's by, I hope I don't butcher this too much, Muel Kaptian, and it's entitled Leaders, Dirty Hands, and COVID-19. In the times of crisis, we have high expectations of our business leaders. We want our leaders to take responsibilities, make decisions, and resolve dilemmas. At such time, the main quality business leaders must possess is a willingness to get their hands dirty because they will be asked to make the decisions that will harm people no matter which way decide. Leaders must have faith in their employees who are working from home, show empathy and be humbled, focused, and self-confident. And other experts tell us that business leaders should now be driven, accountable, and long-term oriented. What characterizes a crisis is a nasty dilemma that requires those in charge to get their hands dirty. When such dirty hands dilemmas arise, fundamental values and principles are often at odds with each other. The problem of dirty hands is a concept derived from the political science that revolves around the question as to whether politicians' violations of moral principles are just during times of war. It has been shown that in circumstances certain circumstances, it is acceptable or even commendable for politicians to collaborate with the enemy to save lives in the future. So what are these rights violations that might occur? The problem of dirty hands is useful to companies in times of crisis. It demonstrates that all sorts of dilemmas are arising in which there is no such thing as a quote good unquote decision. Whatever choice is made, principles are infringed upon, rights are violated, and people may be hurt. That is why true leaders will get their hands dirty in these times of crisis. They are willing to make painful decisions and explain why they have made those decisions, like Philips CEO Franz van Houten recently did on a TV show where he explained in clear terms how Philips is forced to make painful choices if demand for the company's ventilators outstrips supply. Viewers, uh, viewing leaders in such a light provides us with a different perspective on the decision-making process. And this decision-making process is often fraught with uncertainty, doubts, arguments, emotions, and shame and pain. Naturally, true leaders do not abuse the idea of getting your hands dirty. That may be justified in certain circumstances. Leaders are not allowed to get their hands dirty in order to increase their own power, although Machiavelli might have felt differently nor should leaders engage in dirty hands competition. Having no qualms whatsoever about getting one's hand dirty does not make one a good leader. However, the ability to get one's her, one hands dirty is the leadership skill. Interesting article, Tom.
1: So, Jay, next up, we go to data privacy, and here we look at an article. Uh, this must be uh, the. Tom and Jay butcher name today. Perhaps we should have renamed this episode. <laughs> Will uh, e close? Maybe. Maybe not. Anyway, in uh, NYU's. Um, Compliance and Enforcement blog entitled Data Privacy and Security Requirements During Coronavirus. And he uh, goes through and looks at uh, various rules and regs from uh, such agencies as diverse as Securities and Exchange Commission, the United States Department of Health and Human Services, the New York Department of Financial uh, Services, the state of California, and the EU, uh, really looking at uh, financial regulation and forbearance of, uh, data privacy and security requirements during the time of coronavirus health crisis. And what he finds is that, uh, very, uh, few of these, uh, governing bodies have issued guidance. Um, and the ones that have issued guidance have not said that, uh, enforcement is going to change. So, uh, enforcement will remain robust. Um, Although perhaps uh, some deadlines may be extended, such as uh, public companies and those under the NY DFS regulated companies may be uh, entitled to additional time to submit filings regarding risks. You should review your cyber. And privacy risk disclosures, given the impact of transitioning to remote work environments, ensure you're in compliance with both the CCPA. Of course, you being in California are well aware of that, Jay, but also S.H.I.E.L.D. Act compliance under uh, the EU Uh, data breach civil litigation risks still persist. Cyber attacks are on the rise. I heard a figure earlier today that uh, there's been one FBI estimate that there will be $4 trillion worth of cyber crime in 2020 uh, (laughs) alone. And obviously the New World work uh, from home and work remotely is is a large part of that, and continue to monitor the gov- uh, updated uh, government guidance to the extent we get updated government guidance. So um, data privacy is still on the forefront or should be on the forefront of every compliance practitioner and every business executive, and there's not a lot of relief in sight for those who are hoping for that, and you need to m- maintain your robusticity, Jay.
0: Yeah, so uh, I guess I was just going to add. I should not uh, plan on that uh, COVID nineteen defense, huh? I should uh, keep doing my uh, my data privacy. So uh, next art next article comes to us from our good friends at Corporate Compliance Insights, and they say save money where you can, but leave compliance alone. Uh, the authors are Jenna Voss from. Um, F.R.A., and Christina Arenina, and Chase Goldstein from Squire Patent Boggs. While belt tightening is unavoidable for companies nationwide, experts uh, advise against drastically cutting the compliance spend, So, do, as doing so might invite risks that could lead to large penalties down the road. The full magnitude of the global implication of COVID-19 is still largely unknown. Compliance may be one such area where companies attempt to reduce costs. To be sure, it would be financially prudent and reasonable from a business perspective to scale back or eliminate specific compliance functions that have become unnecessary. But this would be appropriate only if the company's risk profile has changed. Enforcement is not slowing down, especially as we learned from the last Uh, article Tom discussed. As companies look for a way to reduce costs, they need to keep in mind that COVID-19 or not, enforcement is not slowing down. Prior to this pandemic, the last few months brought some of the largest FCPA and Arms Export Control Act settlements in history. Since the beginning of the pandemic, U.S. enforcement authorities reaffirmed their commitment to investigating and prosecuting COVID-19-related fraud. On March 16th of this year, J.G. William Barr directed every U.S. attorney's office to prioritize the detection, investigation, and prosecution of all criminal conduct related to the current pandemic. If anything, enforcement will will intensify going forward. Businesses actively related to the U.S. government's administration of COVID-19 relief funds will be subject to additional scrutiny. There are three categories where this will happen the Office of the Special Inspector General for for Pandemic Recovery, SIGPR, within the Treasury Department, and the Pandemic Response Accountability Committee, consisting of the IGs for the Departments of Defense, Education, Health and Human Services, Homeland Security, Justice, Labor and Treasury, among others, and finally, the Congressional Oversight Commission. A company's risk profile remains as relevant as ever. With the robust oversight provisions in the CARES Act and the enforcement authorities' commitment to investigate and prosecute fraud with as much fervor as ever before, there is no doubt that enforcement activity will not slow down. The success of a compliance program depends to a large degree on whether it has been tailored based on the risk assessments and updated as necessary. Risk assessments are especially critical now when the potential for fraudulent behavior and misconduct has increased due to intensified pressures on sales and revenue generation. So how do companies manage through this tumult? Given how quickly and significantly the business landscape has changed under COVID-19, it is important to ensure that your organization is adequately equipped to address the compliance risks your business faces. Both existing and new risks may reside, may arise as a result of market turbulence. A company should tailor its policies and procedures to account for such areas of high risk. In conclusion, while the current circumstances may prove so dire that a company has no option but to reduce compliance spend, it is imperative to first perform a thorough assessment to evaluate the impact cost-cutting would have. With the market turmoil Presenting the prime circumstances for potential misconduct, and regulators signaling they are not planning to turn a broad blind eye, we are uh, we are we look at the long term cost as non compliance. And as Paul McNulty once said, the cost of non compliance could be much greater than the cost than the current compliance spent. Thanks, Tom. Uh, next up, we have a story coming to us from Carrie ben- Penman over at Navics global ethics and compliance matter. And she asks, where was and is and will be your board? COVID-19 is testing every part of a corporation in its business continuity planning. And the very top of the organization, namely the board of directors, is no exception. What are the board's responsibilities during a crisis? It's a question that directors should understand clearly and quickly. In these unprecedented times, many of us have been seeking and reading advice from experts to ensure we are considering new potential risk areas that we need to be managing in our organizations. Kerry went looking for guidance for board members and unfortunately found very little. Let's remember that the board represents shareholders' interests. Its principal responsibility is to assure management is executing a smart, viable strategy for business. First, they should be asking questions about people. COVID-19 threatens a company by threatening its people. So, first, boards need to understand how the company is monitoring and addressing those risks. For example, what will the board do if the CEO or other key executives get sick? Boards need to understand and prepare for executive succession. Second, how will the board itself perform its duties? Boards need to be, have their own plans for convening remotely, such as by video conference. How will the company support the health of its workforce? Every organization will need policies and procedures. To assure that the health of its workforce as much as possible. Whatever the decisions that a board needs to make to ensure that policies are adequate for the risks the company faces and that the procedures to implement those policies actually work and are applied consistently. A second group of questions should be asked about business continuity. Boards will need to oversee the organization's plan for long-term survival. How is COVID-19 affecting the company's customers and suppliers? Boards will need to consider various scenarios about how COVID-19 affects the company's whole business ecosystem for supplier to end user. And then what is the plan to return to, quote, normal operations? As COVID-19 eventually recedes, companies will need a plan first to revive normal operations and ultimately to restore any lost market position. What opportunities may arise from COVID-19 and how could the company seize them? competition might be weak and ripe for acquisition. Directors should be open to those opportunities and expect management to consider such. And finally, how can directors themselves be of help? We're seeing many companies stepping up and changing their entire business to support frontline workers and medical research. Directors might be able to assist the business with short-term needs such as helping to source critical supplies. Finally, other practical issues. Now more than ever, the board can't forget its duty to oversee prevention of employee misconduct. Insider trading, cooking the books, and other securities fraud will surely happen during this crisis, and in fact those risks are higher now. For some executive teams or employees fearing economic ruin, the possibility of malfeasance increases significantly. Right now, boards must be more diligent than ever when it comes to the workplace culture and employee behavior by asking questions. These questions lead to discussions with management about business continuity preparedness, risk assessments, anti corruption policies and procedures. As long as the COVID 19 crisis lasts and beyond, these conversations will be more important than ever. Tom, what's happening on the podcast front with your compliance and coronavirus podcast?
1: So, Jay, we had a great week of uh, podcast yet again on compliance and coronavirus. First up, we had uh, Fiza Khan, who talked about financial regulation during uh, COVID-19 for not only uh, financial institutions, but also financial services companies. Uh, my lawyer, Gordon Firemark, um, L.A. entertainment lawyer, talked to us yesterday about force majeure. And then we had our first guest from uh, India, Sundar Narayana. Un, on a CCO using empathy during uh, the coronavirus crisis. And if I could take it a step further, Jay, uh, on uh, the uh, this uh, month's 31 Days to More Effective Compliance Programs offering on continuous improvement, we took a look at Monday, <clears throat> keeping track of current events for continuous improvement. On Tuesday, big data and continuous improvement. Wednesday was using big data. Thursday was measuring the effectiveness of a compliance program and on Friday, we took a look at proactive monitoring for continuous improvement. Uh, 31 Days to a More Effective Compliance Program is sponsored this month by Affiliated Monitors, and it's also available on iTunes. So uh, check it out. So, Jay, here we are before the NFL draft. We were recording this a few hours before the NFL drafts. But we have Rob Gronkowski going to Tampa Bay. Uh, How are you shifting your allegiance or are you staying true to the men in blue? Uh,
0: I've always liked to uh, hedge my bets a little and have an NFC team. Uh, In the past, they were the uh, San Francisco 49ers and I liked them because the Patriots quarterback at the time, uh, Jim Plunkett was traded to San Francisco. And uh, I think the NFL may be becoming uh, a similar league to the NBA where two or three of your best offensive stars can get together and decide which team's fates will lead to making the playoffs. And my question for you Tom is uh your Golden Boy Michigan zone. Are the Asylums running the institution in Tampa Bay? That's question number 1 and question number 2 is how sad is Bill Belichick that Gronk doesn't want to play for him anymore?
1: Well, since Belichick wanted to trade Gronk back in 2018, uh, I don't think he's sad at all. I think they're glad to get rid of the $10 million cap hit and then get the uh, fourth-round draft pick for somebody that was not going to play for them, period. So I don't think Belichick's sad at all. Um, I don't think Belichick ever looks in his rearview mirror. I think he only looks ahead. So um, in terms of the inmates running the asylum, uh, Jay, the— I don't think Tom Brady can be criticized for his work ethic, his football IQ acumen, or um, his ability to deliver. Now, I recognize he's a 43-year-old male. He certainly doesn't have the arm strength he had 15 years ago. But in terms of understanding his body, understanding his limitations, and understanding what he can do and how he wants to do that – uh I, I think he is uh he's like having an an, uh, an either an assistant gm or assistant coach on the field for the assistant gm part it's getting the the people who he wants to play with who fit in with what he wants to and can do and having the assistant coach on the field is i think in terms of football iq he's still one of the top 3 uh simply because he's been around for so long and he's played at a high level. So um, I think the Tampa Bay made the commitment to him that uh, we will let you help us pick the people you want and we will pay them. And I find really nothing wrong with that, uh, recognizing you're dealing with a 43-year-old man who is, you know, one big hit away from breaking in two. You have Rob Gronkowski, who was certainly, uh, I think it's since 2012, has never played more than 12 games in a season. Um not to say that he's brittle, he's a tough hombre, uh, but he plays in a tough position and he plays it tough. Um, and, uh, he retired because basically his body, uh, had been beaten up so much. Uh, he does say he has the fire in his belly back and I don't deny him that whether he's still got the, the leg strength and drive that made him not just great, but you know, elite, and certainly in the conversation of one of the three top greatest tight ends of all time, uh, if not, you know, even the GOAT of all time and from for tight ends, uh, what he's got left in the tank, I, I don't know. That's an open question in my mind. I once heard Tony Romo say that you have to put great players in position to, to make great plays, and I always wondered why Brady just seemed to throw it up and Gronk came down with it. Well, he's that great a player. And if he can, you know, reclaim that magic for a year or two, if it, if his body is healed and Tom Brady can play the uh, all or most of the season and they bring in a couple of more um, players, although the, Wide receiving core of Tampa Bay. Uh, Mike Evans is just an, uh, an all star, uh, and I think they've got a great receiving core as it is. If they can protect him, uh, there's you know he he may be able to do some things offensively. He hasn't been able to do in several years, at least two years, uh, because of the, the personnel around him. So. I don't think it's the inmates running the asylum. I think it's a, a planned strategy to literally build their team around Tom Brady and now what Tom wants.
0: And does the plan include 50, Super Bowl 55 being played for the first time ever on the home field of the team that's hosting it? Well, it's certainly their plan. It, it could it could make a nice happy ending, right? It's It's a story that maybe Ron Howard would tell. Uh,
1: it, it might, it might be, uh, I don't think there, I don't think you will have internal dissonance because I think there's no chance that the Patriots will be playing in the next Super
0: Uh, 2020 is definitely a rebuild year for new England. I will go on record saying that. And I think, uh, Vegas says eight and a half wins. Is that right?
1: I think you're right.
0: Yeah. All right. Anything to say about the Cowboys or anything else sporting on your mind?
1: Nothing sporting on my mind. Oh, yes, we do have to talk about the Red Sox. Okay. Uh, The Red Sox uh, were sanctioned by the uh, commissioner, Major League Baseball, Rob Manford. And the question I have is, if you suspend someone in a season where there's no play after he's been fired, is it meaningful? we'll leave that philosophical question open for a later date. But uh, Alex Cora was suspended one year, not for his actions as uh, cheating while Red Sox manager, but for his actions on cheating when he was with the Astros bench coach. Uh, the Red Sox lost a second round draft pick and had a play by play videographer sus- uh, suspended for a year. Boy, that's a hell of a sanction. Um So uh, Boston got off pretty light, whether they uh, didn't seem like they engaged uh, in cheating to the extent of the Astros, there certainly wasn't not the drum beat of drum beats on trash cans. Um, There was only hand signals to runners at second. So uh, although Boston apparently had uh, the greatest uh, batting percentage with runners in scoring position ever in 2018, it was limited to that uh, percentage. situation. So uh Boston I think comes out of this pretty good. They lost Cora's manager and that's looks like what'll happen to them. Your thoughts
0: uh I, I think uh I, I can agree with everything you said and uh one one good thing for the Red Sox I happen to be watching uh John Krasinski catching up on his uh feel good news and he said that the uh Red Sox, along with Big Poppy, had reserved four seats for lifetime licenses that would be given to frontline medical heroes in Massachusetts. So there was a nice little piece where uh, some of the first responders uh, from the healthcare industry uh, ran around the bases and uh, seemed to uh, enjoy their duck boat ride. But, Tom, um, yeah, I I thought you were going to go that if this season is canceled and never comes out. Uh, are you saying that core is one and done and he can get back into baseball or does it have to be a legitimate season that he misses games that are actually meaningful?
1: Well, based upon the commissioner's prior ruling that both Lou and AJ Hinch are eligible for rehire in 2021. Um, no matter what happens to this season, I would say I would ask if a cut tree falls in a forest, which no one uh, hears, does it matter.
0: Uh, that's where I was thinking, so let's leave it at that. Let's leave it at that sound of the tree falling in the woods. On behalf of Tom Fox, both the Compliance Evangelist and the Voice of Compliance, and myself, Jay Rose, and Mr. Monitor, would like to thank you for joining us for this week in FCPA, Episode 202 for the week ending April 24th, 2020, the Gronk Returns Edition. Uh, we want to thank you for spending some of your week with us and wish you Safety and health, and we look forward to talking to you next week. Thanks so much.
1: Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA. If you have any questions, you can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. You can email Jay at Rosen at com. I hope you will join Jay and I again next week where we take up some of the week's top compliance and ethics stories, which caught our collective eyes. I hope you're stay, staying safe out there, self-isolating as much as you can. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. We look forward to visiting with you again next week. Thanks so much for listening. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business
0: podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.